Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland in Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. Ankan Galianapong was arguably Thailand's most famous poet of the modern period. His career spanned the year from about the late 1940s to the 1980s, when Thai society was fundamentally transformed by rapid economic development and the process of globalisation. His poetry is a testament to the massive disruption caused by such changes and a lament for cultural loss. But Ankan can also make a claim for being a poet of global significance. The famous American beat poet Allen Ginsberg once met Ankan and translated and published three of his poems. Ankan Galyanapong's poetry is now the subject of a fascinating new book by Arnika Furman titled Teardrops of Time, Buddhist Aesthetics in the Poetry of Ankan Galyanapong, published in 2020 by State University of New York Press. Arnika is Associate Professor in Southeast Asian Studies at Cornell University, and Arnika is with me today to discuss her book. Arnika, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Patrick, for the invitation. Now, before we discuss the book, could you could I start off by asking you how you first became interested in Ankan Galyanapong? Yes. So I think I must have been 19 when I was studying Thai literature, in fact, as a kind of major at a German university in Hamburg. And my teachers there, Pachari Kaspar Zickermann, Klaus Wenk, and Klaus Rosenberg, taught mostly poetry from a certain level on. And so that's where I first encountered Ankan as a kind of a central sort of curricular element of learning Thai and Thai literature. Then I went to, I studied for two years at the Thai department of Chulalongkorn University. And there I was lucky enough to study with the person who's probably the foremost expert on Ankan's work. Her name is Professor Suchitra Jongsatit Watana. And can you tell us for the, the, the listeners, who Ankan Galyanapong is and why is he important? So he's important in, in the context of Thailand, I would say, because um, he, his work was so different from what other poets had done with these sort of inherited poetic aesthetics and what they were doing in the modern period. That at first, it was difficult for people to accept 
this new style of writing and thinking about the world. So initially, Ankan Kalayanapong was vilified and given a lot of trouble even at his, at his educational institution in his university. But over time, he was recognized as a national poet and his work was also integrated into um, school curricula and then also university curricula. Can you give us a brief overview about what the book is about? So I wanted, in the, when I put this book together, I had been studying Ankan on and off for actually three decades, basically. When I put the book together, I wanted to show a poet in Asia, and specifically a poet in Thailand, who had a very expansive framework for what he thought the world should look like, or even what he thought it could still look like, and also how individuals should act in it and live in it. And so to build this very expansive framework, he drew on all the resources that a Thai cultural imaginary has available. So on Hindu cosmology, on Buddhist notions, of very expansive notions of time, he thinks in Buddhist eons instead of just in like five-year plans or something. And he draws on the conventions of Thai poetry. He draws on classical poets. And he brings all those things together to create a kind of cultural critique of the present, but also to, to sketch out what alternative worlds and cosmologies and aesthetics would look like. And so... His work has a lot of meaning in the sort of Thai historical context. When we read, when we look at the main time that he was writing in 1940s to 1980s, or the main time that he was publishing in, because he wrote until his death in 2012. So late 1940s to late 1980s are, in a sense, overdetermined by various Cold War politics in Thailand. And his work speaks in a very different idiom, but it presents a critique of the political logics, the artistic logics, and the sort of everyday ethical logics precisely of that Cold War time that is so overdetermined by militarist, paternalistic, disciplinary political frameworks for the nation, for Thailand. But when we look at his work beyond the framework of Thailand, we find that it or his concerns, in fact, have a lot, a lot of global relevance and resonances. So for one, with Paul Ceylon in Europe, then with Allen Ginsberg, who you just mentioned in the US, as well as with the Bombay poets and also Chinese poets. You're about to ask. I was just going to say it. Arguably, you mentioned uh, poetry elsewhere. Arguably, in the West, we live in an era where poetry as a mode of you know, artistic and literary expression is rather marginalised. Uh, yeah. Could you say something about the status of poetry in, in Thailand during Ankan's career? So I think the status of poetry in Thailand, perhaps even until today, first of all, all Thai literature until a certain modern time is, in fact, in verse the, it's only with the development of the novel that more or less, let's say, that literature begins to be in prose or sometimes poetic prose. So perhaps there is a kind of longer life, a greater longevity of poetry in Thailand. But poetry is also central in the sense that 
for instance, it appears in political slogans, sloganeering. Yes, it does. Right? So it is used as a kind of mnemonics of ideology. It's performed, it's sung in a sense, right? It's read with voice, with a melody. So I think we could argue for more of a centrality of poetry. And especially during certain times of the Cold War, it also took on quite a significant counter-national role in Thai politics, especially in the 1970s. Perhaps the central theme of the book is the conception of time in mm-hmm. Ankan's poetry. And you even use a metaphor from one of his poets, a beautiful metaphor, I think, Teardrops of Time, uh, in the title of your book. Could you uh, explain to us Ankan's view of time and the use of time in his poetry? So reading Ankan's work over a long time, I noticed that the poet is really quite preoccupied with time, maybe obsessed with time. So he writes uh, many whole volumes, but also many individual poems that in fact have as their titles something having to do with time. So he uses time, I would say, largely in two senses. He thinks about time in a philosophical sense. What is it? How can we think about it within a Buddhist framework and beyond a Buddhist framework? He also thinks of it in the sense of what does this mean for the individual? If in a Buddhist conception of time, impermanence is one of the sort of core truths of how we think about time and the progression of time, then what chance does an individual artist especially have for producing work and for having that work last? So much of his work is a debate with this problem, with this obstacle in Buddhist philosophy, because this poet, Ankan, is so dedicated to the production of art and situates the arts and poetry as so central to human life and human ethics that he actually wants to wants to sort of situate it in the place of religion. So the primary researcher on Ankan in Thailand has an essay that she calls The Religion of Aesthetics, in which she argues that the poet, in fact, places art higher than religion, higher than Buddhism, higher than Buddhist truth. I found this part of the book fascinating. Your, you, 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 it's, the other prominent theme really is what you refer to as Buddhist aesthetics. And yeah. in his poetry, Buddhism kind of provides this uh, aesthetic framework. And this relationship between Buddhism and art, you write that uh, Ankan dedicates himself, even sacrifices himself entirely to, to art. And as I understand your argument, you seem to argue that his conception of the status of art goes beyond Buddhist orthodoxy. Could you maybe explain a little bit there uh, what, what you mean? Yes. So this is an argument that is, I would say, not my own. I review um, at great length what has been done in Thai literary studies to make this argument. So in a sense, the the whole book is it's an effort to make the poet more a little more widely known and accessible. It links into efforts to preserve his work as well. That is still a fight to preserve his legacy. It's also a tribute to um, the generation of my teachers in Thailand, such as Suchitra, Jong Sathit Watana, and for instance, uh, Jetana Nak Wachara. And these two teachers 
these two professors are the two who first notice that there is a conceptual problem <laughs> for the poet or in the poet's work regarding Buddhism, religion, the dictates of religion, and the work that literature can do or is supposed to do. So Suchitra in the 80s points out that the poet at first, in 1959, when he writes his poetic manifesto called Panithan Kong Kawi, the Pledge of the Poet, he is still he says he is willing to sacrifice his life for the creation of art. And this art is supposed to have a redemptive quality for the world. But when he writes a second manifesto almost 30 years later in 1986 called Panitan Kawi, which I translate as the testament of the poet, Suchitra points out that Ankan at that point <laughs> wants to go even further and wants to sacrifice even his prospects his soteriological prospects, so his ability to reach nirvana. And I could read the poem, the, just one stanza of the poem, to make clear what is at stake. So in 1959, he writes, I will consent to sacrificing and leaving behind life, hoping for precious things created anew, radiant. May the science of poetry be sacred, the highest science magical like a flower from the crystal forest, falling from the sky, fragrant. But in almost 30 years later, or 27 years later, he augments his dedication to creating poetry. And he writes, I will even not go to nirvana. I will whirl in the manifold circles of transmigration, translating the meaning of the real value of the many galaxies into stanzas of poetry for the universe. And so, as both Suchitra and Jaitana observed, this was something that had never happened in Thai poetry before or in Thai literature, that someone was willing to or was intent on or felt driven to circumvent the, almost the dictates or the logics of a Buddhist ontology that sets nirvana or soteriology as its highest goal. And that also says that there is no way of evading or surpassing impermanence. But this is something that Ankan tries to do. He tries to go beyond the laws of impermanence to, to create poetry, and that's the work that he wants poetry to do. In various places in the book, you talk about uh, the influence of the, the Mahayana conception of the Bodhisattva. And when you read out that excerpt from, from one of the poems of, by denying or, or refusing to kind of enter nirvana but sacrificing yourself for your art, it's almost like a he's almost comparing himself, it seems to me, as, as a kind of modern-day Bodhisattva, uh, denying nirvana in order to pursue his artistic a- ambitions. Is that going too far? No, I think that's exactly it. But this is, again, this is Suchitra um, who first finds this out. Suchitra says that that Ankan, in order to kind of resolve the conundrum of how art is supposed to outlast him and um, outlast time, in a sense, outlast the logics of impermanence, comes up with, finally, comes up with the solution of staying on in the what he calls the circle of transmigration as a bodhisattva in order to continue to produce redemptive art, redemptive writing for the world. 
So this is what Sujitra says, but as I am, you know, several decades later, reading Ankan also in the context of global poetries, I am reading through um, Allen Ginsberg's work, and I'm also reading uh, criticism of his work. And in Ginsberg's work as well, at roughly the same time, the trope of the bodhisattva, the idea that the poet or the artist is a bodhisattva, also comes up very strongly. So in comparing these two poets who actually met, and um, as you pointed out, had a poetic exchange and Ginsberg actually produced three transpositions of Ankan's work into English. So as I was reading about the intersections of these two poets, I found out, I saw that Mahayana Buddhism, so not the the most official strain of Buddhism in Thailand and not the most, by far not the most official religion of the U.S., this Mahayana Buddhism or also Vajrayana Buddhism in Ginsburg's case was doing a lot of interesting cultural work. And in both poets' cases and in both national contexts, what Mahayana Buddhism allowed both poets to do is to develop a language and an imaginary that not only critiqued the Cold War ideology that they were living in, so in the case of Thailand, the anti-communist, militarist political formation inaugurated maybe by um, Sarit Tanarat, and in the case of the U.S., the anti-communist, also Cold War and Vietnam War, especially imaginary that Ginsburg was writing against. So it was specifically Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism that allowed these poets to critique those political, cultural contexts and also to point to worlds and imaginaries beyond them. So I thought this was very interesting that both Ginsburg and Ankan rely a lot on the trope of the bodhisattva. So the Buddha who defers his, mostly his, right? Um, but sometimes her. The Buddha who defers his own soteriological progress in order to stay in the world and perform redemptive work. Ginsburg and Ankan also both rely on other aspects of Mahayana Buddhist philosophy to, to outline their worlds. The encounter between Allen Ginsberg and Ankan is, is fascinating. I was wondering if you could tell the story to the listeners. Yeah, so I think as I was as I was uh, going through my translations again and again and comparing, obviously, to the few translations in German and English that were already there, I kept seeing the name Ginsberg. And I remembered I had seen Allen Ginsberg as translator of three of Ankan's poems since the 80s, and I hadn't thought much about it. But when I came back to the work and was preparing to put the book together, I thought I have to find out what, what happened. How could it be Allen Ginsberg, you know, a poet who seems so far away from Thailand? And I began to do research on Allen Ginsberg's ties to Southeast Asia, in which I was given a lot of help by people who manage his estate, by um, librarians. I found out from Peter Hale, who is Ginsburg's longtime friend and manages his estate, I found out that Allen Ginsburg had traveled to Thailand just in 1963, just before he set out on his journey to India, which is much better documented. 
1963, he came to Bangkok, something that he also records in his diary, uh, something that um, I was also able to, to publish for the first time in the book. He records his impressions of Bangkok, and he meets a Thai cultural critic called Sulak Siwarak, and he asks Ajahn Sulak, whether he knows any, I don't know if he says beat poets, but you know, whether he knows any interesting Thai poets. And Sulak takes him to meet Ankan, and then together, all three of them transpose some of Ankan's poems into English. So Sulak translates, and Ginsberg kind of improvises on what he hears. And so the result are three translations that have been done by Allen Ginsberg. So after I found that out, I did a more thorough comparison of the ways in which they use Buddhism, the ways in which both of the poets use language, the ways in which they integrate an imagination of cosmic worlds, so cos uh, the Hindu cosmos, Buddhist cosmology, with the, at times, sordid everyday of the modern period that they're living in, and with their critiques of, of the Cold War, I would say, just to abbreviate it. It's a fascinating Cold War story. At yeah. this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about Ankhan's political stance. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Annika Furman about her new book, Teardrops of Time, Buddhist Aesthetics in the Poetry of Ankan Galiana Pong. Ankan is seen by some as politically conservative, uh, you might say even reactionary, but you argue in the book that his political stance is, is much more complex than this, and you d- discuss his views of the Sarit regime and also the, the democracy protests of the uh, early 1970s. Can you explain to us where uh, Ankan is politically? So generally, Ankan has either, either been cast as somehow conservative, if not reactionary, or as non-political, especially in the 1970s context of poetic production in Thailand. So Ankan is a lot older than the poets of the 1970s, who write very vehemently and very prolifically and very explicitly against the uh, dictatorships of that time. So if we're thinking of Nawarat Pong Pai Boon or Kom Thuan Kantanu or a whole host of other poets, much of their poetic work, at least at a certain time, is dedicated to mobilizing the vocabularies of labor in the city and labor on the farm to producing a kind of critique of military dictatorship, to demanding democratic reform, to mourning the losses of 1973 and 1976. At that time, strangely, Ankan does not address the events of 1973-76 so directly. So many readers have thought that he's either not interested or he doesn't mind. He's, he's on the side of the political elites and dictatorship. As it turns out, this is from biographical evidence from talking to his daughter, Om Keo Kalayana Pong, and from talking to the cultural critic and activist, 
Sulaksiwarat. This was not at all the case. He, Ankan, shaved his head after the political massacres. He cried. He was very much against the military actions all along. But in his poetry around 1970 and 80, because maybe the largest part of the literary scene continues to reflect on the events of the 70s well into the 1980s, if not longer. But in Ankan's poetry, yes, we read some sort of general disparagement of dictators and corruption, but we don't have any account so specifically of the events of 73-76. So many people were quick to discount his politics. This is in addition to the fact that Ankan is very critical of the cultural present of his time, disparaging of Bangkok, of youth culture, of Western influence, etc. So this had people cast him or kind of dismiss him as probably maybe even right-wing, but at least conservative or non-political. As it turns out, both in biographical evidence as well as in some of his poems, he is very much for democratic reform, democratic revolution, perhaps even at the time. That's one aspect of his politicizedness. But so then people ask, why is this then not reflected in his poetry or his painting? He's also a painter. Actually, it is reflected in his painting. In the book, I argue that in his poetry, too, we can read from his poetry, even that of the 1970s, we can read a politics. The politics that his work outlines just takes a different format than that of his Art for Life poet colleagues. So the Art for Life poets stand in a certain tradition. They use certain vocabularies very inventively, very beautifully to argue against continued military repression, to argue for democratic reform, to champion the aesthetics and rhythms of the farm, but also of the urban worker. So there the, there's a, a certain congruence between the counternational demand that they're making and the aesthetics that they're using. But they do, all of them continue to use inherited conventional Thai poetic metrics, although they vary them in all kinds of ways. In contrast, Ankan does something completely different. He uses a completely different vocabulary, not that of the farm or the urban worker, not the vocabularies of a kind of socialism. But he focuses on defamiliarizing a vocabulary, poetic vocabulary and imaginary that he believes is inherited from Ayutthaya, so the 14th to 18th century Thai kingdom. So what I'm arguing is that in the sort of explicit cultural critique of the present and in the aesthetic framework that he creates, namely to make the world bigger than just the nation, but to include also the cosmos, to include a Hindu-Buddhist cosmology as part of his cultural critique, and to think very hard and intensively and almost so passionately that it so passionately that it kind of jumps out from the page to think so seriously about cultural loss and how to rectify it is definitely also a political stance and so i'm reading his work also as a kind of post-colonial critique of the present and imagination of what it would mean to to have a truly 
Thai, Buddhist, maybe Asian cultural framework that persists and that isn't just exchanged by the kind of disciplinary language created by, I don't know, 1960s regimes or by the exigencies of technocratic development, medicine, engineering, etc. You mentioned a minute ago the significance of Ayutthaya, the kingdom of Ayutthaya in, in Ankan's poetry. It seems to him to represent kind of the height of Thai aesthetic achievement, whereas he's you know, constantly lamenting what he sees as the decadence and the corruption of, of the present. Can you tell us what did Ayutthaya mean to Ankan and why is it so important for him in his poetry? So as you say, uh, you're very right to say that this for him is the high point of Thai cultural achievement. If we think of Thai history as in the conventional way as a continuum of kingdoms in which Ayutthaya comes at point, you know, in the year 1350 and then persists for 400 years. So that is his blueprint. Everything that was written in Ayutthaya, everything that was built in Ayutthaya furnishes a model for what he thinks is a desirable cultural framework. So this is where he thinks that both aesthetics, beauty of various kinds, comes together with a kind of ethical disposition. So he has many, many poems that are about Ayutthaya. And these poems become most, how to say it, maybe most convincing and most painful to read about when when they take the form of this genre that is called nirat. So nirat are travelogue poems where a traveler sets out from home and as he, it's usually, it's always a he in the past, where he sets out from home and as he gets away from, from his hometown or his family, he feels that he misses them. So nirat are laments that lament the temporary or non-temporary loss of home and lover. Um, and they do all kinds of interesting things and they develop in many ways over the centuries and over the decades. And so Ankan does, really, does something really interesting because he picks up this well-known genre where someone sets out and takes everything that he sees along the way and relates it back to the thing that he misses at home. So flowers remind him of his lover, etc. So Ankan takes this formula and applies it to a kind of cultural historical loss. So he his poems travel through Ayutthaya in a sense, but then lament the loss, so the dereliction of the old palaces, the loss of the art, the craftsmen, the kings, the aesthetics, the ethics of that period. And so this is a very, it's very powerful because for one, he invokes the beauty of Ayutthaya, citing also classical poets who have written about the city, the kingdom. So he lays out the full glory of this city and kingdom, but then turns to lamenting the loss, again, item by item, this and that and this glory and these beautiful things and these edifices, all this is lost now and left is only, you know, just terrible things. I could read it just like one stanza. Oh, see, Ayodhya, you are a charnel ground defying the buried dream. Miraculous art of eternity, auspicious spirit of the heavens, you have come to be submerged in the earth. So that's just 
one stanza in a long poem um, about the fall of Ayutthaya. So he comes back to this as an ideal again and again. In this, the significance that Ayutthaya has in his poetry and, and his, I guess, his sort of overall, the overall sort of direction of his poetry, he, he, he can come across as a kind of a hardcore cultural nationalist. He's particularly scathing, as you said, of you know, Western culture and the process of globalisation, which he tends to see as corrupting Thai society. But on the other hand, you see him, I think you call him the most globalised of poets. Can yeah. you explain this apparent contradiction? Yes, thank you so much for that question. It's such a good question. Um, so yes, at face value, there are lots of lines that we could cite where he seems very culturally nationalist, and he is a cultural nationalist um, to an extent. Um, again, he was, you know, as much as he critiques uh, some kinds of Western influence in his poetry, he was a very cosmopolitan intellectual artist. He was his whole life and body and being was dedicated to producing art. But at one interview or event, um, he speaks of himself and he says, "I read like an ocean, everything I can get my hands on, but mostly literature." And his daughter confirms that he, in fact, tried to read everything from Indian philosophy to books in English. So he was a very curious cosmopolitan thinker and artist, on the other hand. But when we look at, when we look at poetry, when we look at the work that it might be doing, we can not only look at, we should not only look at intentional content, we also have to look at its composition, right? And so what stands out so much about this poet is the way in which he uses language or the way in which he uses form as a whole, because he uses form completely differently from any of, the, any of his contemporaries and any global poet that I know of. I think he's most comparable to Ceylon and Ginsberg, but globally. But if we read his work in Thai, we really notice that something, something strange is happening. So he's using the vocabulary, the Sans Sanskritic Pali vocabulary of, of a Thai literary vocabulary, but he transforms it. He takes verbs that like divine that are usually used as adjectives and he makes them into nouns. So he does a lot of repositioning of words in terms of their function. Another thing that he does is he takes all this vocabulary that's associated with the divine, with different cosmological levels, with gods, with a Hindu cosmos. He takes that whole vocabulary and he mixes it up with um, sort of the Greek Latin words that have been adapted into Thai to speak about what's happening in the second part of the 20th century, namely developments in things like medicine, technology. So you will have the name of maybe a Hindu god mixed with the adjective nuclear. You will also find vulgar words in Thai, like ba, crazy, but sop, idiotic. There are words, lots of curses having to do with rotten dogs, etc. All these are mixed with a classical poetic vocabulary. So in a sense, just looking at the English or Latin Greek cognates that appear in his work, 
we can already say that he's doing something very creative with language and he's doing something very creative with globalization just by seeing the the kinds of vocabularies that he combines and that he lets chafe against each other so this is one way in which he enters a conversation on globalization beyond merely disparaging it if I could turn to the issue of gender in Ankan's poetry, you mentioned a minute ago uh, the Nirat uh, genre where the traveller, almost always as far as I'm aware, the male traveller, you know, he's away from home and away from his lover, uh, a woman presumably. So on the one hand, you, you point out that Ankan uses a, a familiar Buddhist convention where women are a kind of a motive to be used, you know, to illustrate the doctrine of impermanence and the futility of attachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, in, in some other poems, he seems to understand women in a new way. I think you use the term as intellectual partners, which is very modern. So I was wondering, yeah, again, almost kind of a contradiction. So, yeah, is, is gender an important feature of Ankan's poetry and uh, in what way? So I, my first book was about gender and sexuality, right? How could this not be about gender and sexuality? I felt very bad. But looking at the thematic that is so overriding in his work, time, and that I chose to further highlight and really try to think through in the book, those poems are rarely about women. There's one very beautiful and famous poem that is about a woman. It's called Sia Jiao, Losing You. Except for that, women are a little implicit in his, you know, his defamiliarization, his play with the Nirat convention. Uh, They are not there. There is no woman who has been left. There is only a civilization that has been lost. The remark or the analysis that women appear in two different ways in his work uh, one is the sort of conventional, you know, disparagement of feminine wiles or something that is often used in doctrinal Buddhist stories and materials. That is one way in which he relates to femininity. And another one is in several poems, but this is traced by Suchitra Jongsadit Watana, not by me in this book. In others, he is thinking about women as his equals, as people to do intellectual work with or share intellectual work with. So I felt I had to at least address something having to do with gender in the book. I do think that when when Ankan designs these worlds of unimaginable dimensions in which the poet inhabits all cosmological strata, I think he is implicitly thinking mostly of a male poet. At least we don't have any evidence to the contrary. At times, he names this mythical poet who does redemptive work as a kind of bodhisattva, between the heavens and the world, he thinks of this poet as himself. He names him as Ankan himself. So it is a very masculinist imaginary, I would say. 
One of the great contributions of your book, Anika, I think, to the you know the international scholarly community is your translation of many of Ankan's poems into English. You mentioned those three by Ginsberg, but that that's as far as I know. That there, there's a great deal more than that, and and you've provided uh, a lot of them in your book. I imagine the translation was no easy task, to put it mildly. I was wondering if you could tell us about you know, the, the challenge of translating Ankan's poetry into English. Thank you so much for that question because it is it was a great challenge and I am still very anxious about how well or not well I may have succeeded. So I did spend a lot of time this this was actually done over decades of course with like long pauses in between. The challenge I would say the challenge but also the interesting thing is that that poetry in Thai does not have as clear a designation of syntax as poetry in another language still might have. So in that sense, that makes it both easier and harder. So Ankan uses a lot of seemingly incomplete phrases or phrases without verbs or phrases where you don't know what tense the verb is in. Is it in the past, the present, the future? So this makes it both more open-ended, the language, the meaning, the intention, the ways in which you could transpose it into English is both more open, but it's also less clear what that line might actually say, right? So I think his work is already difficult in Thai and for native readers of Thai. And to transpose it into English is a challenge also because you have to do something to approximate the flavor of the different vocabularies that this poet is throwing together, right? He has a, a word like san, the circle of transmigration, you know, juxtaposed, I'm just making it up now, juxtaposed with nuclear, juxtaposed with the word serum, juxtaposed with a less uh, sort of Buddhist Thai word, a more everyday Thai word that is not Sanskritic Pali. How do you, how do you say to be born in English in a way that signifies that the being who is born is a celestial being? Do, do, you, trans, uh, do you translate it as take birth or it's very it's very difficult to reflect in the english translation the so-called heteroglossia so the different strata of language and vocabularies that all come together and that give this poetry in thai it's it's kind of explosive critical edge, but also its beauty. What is easier to approximate is verbs that are unclear in their sort of tense. You can often just translate that into a, what do you call it, a continuous form of the verb. Is there a particular poem that's uh, your favorite? Which poem is my favorite? I mean, but these are just the ones that are most well known. I do love, I do love the two pledges. Uh, maybe too much attention has been given to them already. Um, that kind of bring everything together in his work. So both the expansive cosmological imaginary, the kind of eco egalitarian eco. Uh, ontology that he creates, the cultural critique, the artistic dedication, everything is in there. 
As you know, we never let authors go without asking them whether they're working on a new project and what that project might be. Um, it's something completely different. I'm trying to complete a small book on essentially on Bangkok as a Chinese city and the ways in which both bars, hotels, and clubs currently and some films and literature are undertaking a cultural revival, a Chinese cultural revival, not only of Bangkok's Chinese pasts, but kind of mixing them up with Shanghai and Hong Kong. Fascinating. Uh, Annika Furman, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Teardrops of Time, Buddhist Aesthetics in the Poetry of Ankhan Galyanapong, published by State University of New York Press in 2020. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you so much for your invitation and great questions. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, as always, for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to an earlier interview with Annika on her book, Ghostly Desires, Queer Sexuality and Vernacular Buddhism in Contemporary Thai Cinema, or uh, Alicia Turner, Brian Bocking and Lawrence Cox's co-written book, The Irish Buddhist, The Forgotten Monk Who Faced Down the British Empire. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. <laughs>